This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Emeritus Professor Jenny Hocking. Jenny is a political scientist and biographer and is the inaugural Distinguished Whitlam Fellow at the Whitlam Institute. She's also affiliated with Monash University. Jenny joined me to talk about her High Court win to have the Palace Letters released by the National Archives of Australia. We talk about what they reveal about the 1975 Whitlam dismissal, as well as their significance to us now. I'm really pleased to welcome to the show Jenny Hocking, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for taking the time to chat. I know um, you've certainly been in demand recently, and is it any wonder? Um, And I know that uh, the Whitlam dismissal, was a very important moment for many people, many Australians who were living um, at the time and remember it well as either children or adults. And uh, it's even, of course, still very significant to people like myself who were not born at the time, um, but are obviously followers of politics and also look at uh, Gough Whitlam as being one of the greatest uh, prime ministers we had um, in terms of his policy vision and the types of kind of cataclysmic, in a great way, um, things that he did for Australia in uh, levelling and creating social equity. So first up, um, given that you have this background and a really strong grounding in Gough Whitlam's overarching uh, life, given you've written a two-volume biography about this great man, (laughs) I I wonder what really brought you into looking at at Gough Whitlam in such depth and then pursuing this you know, quite long and and um, fascinating career in following the the Whitlam dismissal. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Um, well, the biography of Gough Whitlam was actually the third biography I'd, I've written. Um, I discovered biography um, after working, funnily enough, in the much more dry and uh, traditional political science area of counterterrorism, <laughs> and I was always interested in. Um, you know, in how democracy works and what sort of constraints um, are deliberately or otherwise placed on our capacity to really function as a democratic state. And clearly the counterterrorism initiatives I had found very disturbing for a range of levels um, uh, around those issues. Um, and I'd spent a lot of time on that. But I, I, I came across the form of biography in my first biography, which was of the Labor Attorney General and later High Court Justice Lionel Murphy, who was an extraordinarily reforming Attorney General in the Whitlam government, a really significant figure, um, both particularly as Attorney General but also on the High Court, um, where he took a very different view to most of the High Court judges um, that he served with. Um, and I loved biography as a form of telling Australian history or any history. It's you know filled with fascinating characters, fascinating episodes, and it's a way of really bringing them to life if you if, if you can write it in that narrative style as I do. Um, and it was really through that 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 um, at some point later I returned to the similar field with looking at Gough Whitlam. I'd met Whitlam when I uh, interviewed him for the Lionel Murphy book, uh, the biography, and I'd often wondered about it, but it took some time before I decided I, I wanted to go back into a similar sort of political time period that, uh, uh, as that for Murphy. And, and look, it was a terrific relationship uh, uh, of the three biographies I've written. 
um, uh, this was the only time that I was able to actually speak to the subject of the biography. Murphy had died when I wrote about him. The other biography I wrote about um, Frank Hardy, the Australian communist and author, mm. a very political figure, uh, and in many respects a forgotten writer, but a very interesting writer. Um, he had also died, but I had met him previously. So here with Whitlam, I was able to both meet him and speak to him, and this was a new experience for me as a biographer. And, you know, the extraordinary thing is that in all the depths of the conversations we had, the formal interviews I did with him, he never asked to see the book before it was published, and I always respected that greatly. It was not something I had ever uh, would ever have done. I, I, I took a very strong line on that from the beginning. It was my book. It was to be written as I saw it. Um, so, yes, that led me into a very long period of working on that biography for the best part of 10 years. And uh, in terms of uh, obviously meeting Gough Whitlam and talking about the many, many important parts in his political life and career as Prime Minister, of course, at the end, um, I wonder when you were reflecting on the dismissal, the moment of the dismissal, and we didn't yet have access to what we do now, um, and, of course, Gough Littlin passed away um, in recent years. What was his response and reaction and, and reflection on the dismissal uh, from his perspective? Well, the dismissal was obviously an absolutely shocking uh, point in his, in his uh, political career. It was effectively the end of his political career. He'd spent um, the best part of... 20 years in Parliament since the early 50s, uh, you know, during the most barren and hopeless years for the Labor Party when it was torn apart by the split, the great split of 1955 in particular, um, which decimated the Labor Party. And, of course, Sir Robert Menzies, the, the Liberal leader, had a, a really unassailable hold on Australian politics as Prime Minister uh, during that time period until the late 60s. Um, but Whitlam was an extraordinary backbencher and then an extraordinary leader of the opposition when he recast the Labor Party and built um, the policy platform. So, you know, the dreadful aspect of the dismissal was that it was entirely unexpected. Um, uh, the Governor-General did not warn him as the Governor-General must. Mm. Uh, the Governor-General refused to act on Whitlam's advice and Whitlam was advising a half-Senate election, which was to be held at that time. Um, it, it, I think... Uh, uh, shocked Whitlam, not just because it happened. He described it to me later uh, at the moment in John Kerr's study where Kerr handed him the letter of dismissal. Whitlam told me was uh, the greatest shock he had ever experienced in his life. Um, but it also shocked his belief in the parliamentary system. He was someone who, who held the parliamentary system, the structures of liberal democracy, the Westminster system, and, of course, what he always called the Great Australian Labor Party, um, highest in his, in his uh, belief, in his esteem and in his commitment. And it really shattered that. It shattered the way in which he saw people operating from a sort of ethical position in, in those positions of governance. Uh, and he simply struggled, I think, for several years to, to come to terms with that. And I think it's to his great credit that he did, that he did not become embittered and... Uh, uh, obsessed, as I believe Sir John Kerr did, uh, the Governor-General. And a large part of that, I think, is owed to the fact that Bob Hawke, the, the, his successor Labor Prime Minister, appointed Whitlam as Australia's ambassador to UNESCO. And Whitlam had a very fruitful and very productive three years um, 
uh, as Australia's ambassador and he was then elected to the UNESCO board, executive board. So he spent another three years um, in that capacity and that was a great joy to him. And I think it really it really saved him in a sense from what a lesser figure might have become um, being unable to cope with. Mm, that's a fascinating observation and he certainly made such a contribution in lifting up the arts in Australia and promoting culture and um, so many different programs that enabled people to engage with the arts and culture and heritage. Um, in terms of your experience researching and no doubt you've spent a very great length of time looking through archival boxes and um, poring over letters and telegrams uh, across your career, you know, looking into these great uh, figures in history, but particularly looking at the Whitlam dismissal. And I do know that, um, you know, you went through a lot of Sir John Kerr's letters that were actually accessible at the time um, and, and open for public viewing or scrutiny. Um, I wonder when you were looking through those letters, what was the catalyst for you to to realise there was something more and to also decide to pursue this um, through legal avenues to actually achieve access to the palace letters, to achieve access to what clearly has been missing in this story um, and what hasn't hadn't been transparent and open about the dismissal up until now? Well, really it was that process through other archives that you describe. There's one thing to be said about the history of the dismissal as opposed to the dismissal itself. The history of the dismissal has been a very, very uh, difficult one to ascertain. I mean, all history, you know, you go back to original documents, you go to as many sources as you can, um, and you often there's a largely accepted uh, received history, you might call it, around particular events. But with the dismissal, you just couldn't really grasped that. It was slippery. It was kept secret on some levels. People, let's face it, did not tell the truth about what happened. The Prime Minister had been deceived. And perhaps the most shocking thing after that was that our history was deceived. Mm. Time and again in Kerr's papers, what would shock me is how much of what Kerr wrote in his papers had been publicly denied by Kerr, by Fraser, by others at the time. It was, you know, truly, and by Sir Garfield Barwick, our Chief Justice, truly quite a shocking realisation uh, at, at that level of the ethical uh, nature of what was done in 1975 and how it was then written up in the history by the protagonists. Just one example of that is that among her papers, I found what many people described at the time as an absolutely transformative um, detail about the dismissal that had always been denied, and that was the role of the of the um, of, of the then um, Justice of the High Court, Sir Anthony Mason. For many months, Mason uh, had been meeting in secret with Kerr, had been, as Kerr described it, guiding him for the decision he was to take, fortifying him for the decision he was to take. It was a profound breach of the separation of powers, absolutely vital for understanding the role of others in the dismissal when we had always been told that this was a decision made by Kerr alone. So I knew that Kerr's papers were absolutely vital. I knew it contained secrets that were gradually being revealed to us, that the history was changing because of that. And here was one file that I could not access. I found out later that they were uh, the letters between Sir John Kerr and the Queen. And of all things, Amy, the most extraordinary thing is that letters between the Queen and the Governor-General 
two people at the apex of a constitutional monarchy were described as personal. And so mm. because they were described as personal, they weren't considered official Commonwealth records and therefore they didn't come under the Archives Act, which would have meant they'd be in the open access period after 30 years. So, of course, I was in a catch-22. Because they're not Commonwealth records, I couldn't appeal because that only related to Commonwealth records. I could not appeal to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is relatively straightforward and certainly far less onerous because I think it cost $1,000, but at that time it was for, it, there was no cost for appealing. There was literally nothing I could do, and that was about a decade ago. So, look, it took a long wow. time for me to talk to others, to uh, discuss it with um, lawyers, and a wonderful barrister in Sydney, Tom Brennan, had written an article about the fact that the letters were hidden and said, look, under our own Archives Act, Australia owns its history. We should be able to access these letters. I saw his, his article. I contacted him and said, look, I completely agree. This is an outrage. These are key documents in our history and all Australians ought to be able to open them and look at them and understand them. And so, look, out of that, we connected um, and I came away thinking about it. There was a real possibility of mounting a, a legal action. Mm. And I know it started in the federal court, but did you ever think that it would end up at the high court? No, no, look, it's, a, it, it's been such a long process, a four-year process, as you know. Um, I didn't, it sounds strange, but I didn't think towards the end point. I, I thought each step through at the time. Um, it was a big decision to go forward. Um, there were a lot of uh, elements that ha we had to try to control um, around the risk factors involved, which were real. Um, you know, the, 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 the lawyers were working magnificently and, and very generously on a pro bono basis. Um, and I had a marvellous um, crowdfunded campaign alongside that. So there are a lot of juggling things happening. Um, and I was just determined that if I could sort those issues out along the way, step by step, I would go forward as far as we possibly could. Uh, it's interesting that we always anticipated, or at least the legal team, um, uh, you know, clearly it was clear to me that one prospect was that it could end up at the High Court because I felt all along that if the archives lost at any point, they would appeal. Mm. So in that sense, yes, I knew that was the end point. Um, but I tried not to think about that um, uh, because it makes the whole thing absolutely massive and I yeah. found it easier to deal with on a step-by-step -step basis. Um, and by the time we got to the High Court, I think that's the point at which I felt, uh, you know, that this was truly momentous because it's so difficult to succeed mm. at uh, the level of applying for special leave to appeal to the High Court. I, I was reading just yesterday that those figures are barely 10% actually do make it through to the High Court on appeal. So it was very a very difficult step. But more difficult than that was the difference between me as a self-funded, crowd-funded litigant <laughs> against all of the resources of the Commonwealth. I was not only citing the archives whom I took to court, but by the time we got to the High Court, uh, the Attorney-General in the Morrison Government, Christian Porter, joined with the archives in, 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 in contesting the case against me. And, of course, right from the beginning, Government House and Buckingham Palace had made a submission to the federal court arguing in the strongest possible terms that the letter should not be released. So it was a pretty clear imbalance in our institutional resources by the time we got to the High Court. 
Absolutely, yeah. And uh, on a kind of side note, I noticed that the um, National Archives are certainly struggling for funding to digitise a lot of their magnetic tapes. So um, I was I was surprised that it did get to the High Court, um, given that it's so difficult to ascertain or obtain funding for the arts and culture um, at the best of times. Um, I did want to oh, ask... Look. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say that's a very, very important point. You know, mm. there's very strong questions, I think, raised about the priorities of the archives in contesting an effort to make available for public access letters which are in their own holdings. They were effectively arguing against public access to, to critical historical documents. I mean, I found that very difficult in the first instance. But secondly, that, yes, the cost to the taxpayer from their budget was massive. We, we estimate around about a million dollars by the time it got to the High Court. And, of course, since they lost the case in a 6-1 decision in my favour, all costs were awarded against the archives, which has probably doubled that cost they were facing at that point. So you're looking in the order of $2 million uh, that has been expended by the archives on trying to, to, to argue against um, access to the letters. Effectively, allow it, they would have allowed the Queen's embargo to continue. And I think that does raise real questions about their priorities at the moment. Yes, yeah. I certainly saw in the news it would be in the hundreds of thousands or at least 130,000 hours of audio and video on the magnetic tape may not be digitised in time, but that's another conversation. Um, but I did want to pick up on what you're saying about the that real resistance that you were met with um, by many people, not just the archives, of course. Um, we did see that the official secretary to the Governor-General, Mark Fraser, um, noted in a submission that uh, the palace letters continued, continued secrecy was essential, quote, to preserve the constitutional position of the monarch and the monarchy, end quote. And I was really interested in that kind of angle and, and motivation for protecting so-called the, the monarchy and the monarch um, and, and their position within Australia. What was your kind of response and, and reaction to that type of argument? Well, this is really the nub of um, some of the key strands in the archives' legal argument um, from the beginning. And I have to say it always surprised me that we were meant to sway our own <laughs> judges in our own jurisdiction here in Australia that the interpretation of our own Archives Act ought to have any consideration of the wishes of the Queen in this way. And yet that was repeatedly um, put to the court that uh, uh, there would be damage done to the monarchy, that, that it would potentially um, impinge on the integrity and the dignity, it was claimed in one of the submissions of, of the Queen and the monarch and indeed the monarchy itself. More broadly, so so yes, a very strong um, uh, claim of uh, uh, of relevance of of uh, the royal wishes, um, and and I was always surprised by that. Um, and indeed, the High Court judgment made it very clear. The majority judgment made it very clear that their finding uh, did go against the express wishes of the Queen, and made the point that the Queen's wishes could not 
um, take the place of the statutory interpretation of the Archives Act. Now, you might think that in 2020, <laughs> for an independent autonomous nation, we, we should not have to actually make that point, but we did, mm. because the very strong um, the very strong thread through the Archives argument was the need to retain what, what they termed a convention of royal secrecy. Now, that's just an intolerable notion for any, any independent state. You can't protect royalty ahead of the normal workings of governance. Um, and so that it's, it's actually a very, very significant judgment because of that. Um, and I think that's a level of implication that is yet to be fully explored in the High Court decision um, because we've all focused understandably on the immediate access to the letters. Never before, I think, in a Commonwealth nation has there been a challenge to royal secrecy in this way. You, royal correspondence is simply locked up impenetrable, it's in the Royal Archives or in our own Commonwealth Archives and you cannot access it. This has broken through that and it's a very important decision. Yeah, that's so true. And uh, the, the kind of precedent that it provides for potentially other cases down the track will be really interesting to see um, how this legal area develops and emerges given this case. So um, I think a pat on the back to you and the great legal team for pursuing this and um, and also to those who contributed to that crowdfunding uh, campaign because it really has been a, a very important um, action to pursue. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. It has been and it's been an enormous privilege and, and a great um, a great experience, I must say, to, to be able to follow a legal case through in this way and to see how history can feed into a, a case. I, I, I have found that process conceptually absolutely riveting. So yeah. you know, I'm a bit of a nerd on that level, but, <laughs> but it really has been uh, such an important case and I, I, I thank everyone involved. Mm, yeah, uh, well, I can relate to you on the nerd front. Um, now getting to the nerd <laughs> parts of the conversation, perhaps, um, where I'm so excited about, you know, understanding better what in your mind, given that you've had such a, a great opportunity to read, or, you know, a huge vast amount of Sir John Kerr's letters prior to these palace letters and, of course, other primary evidence, um, no doubt you've now had a chance to you know, read over the numerous letters, and I believe you said there were 211 letters, totaling 1,200 pages within this um, palace letters uh, grouping um, that was finally released by the National Archives just a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, could you share with us what kind of things we did learn, what things we learnt from these letters that we didn't have a, a definitive answer or a clear understanding of uh, without them? Yeah, we, look, we, we had... Um, they are an amazing set of papers, that's the first thing to say. They're just extraordinarily important. All of the things I had anticipated um, really are, are met by the letters in terms of their significance, the, the, um, the great light they shed on Kerr's thinking and on the role of the palace in terms of influencing Kerr's thinking. I think that's without a doubt now. Much of the material confirmed um, uh, uh, what I had already found in Kerr's papers because the other point to make about Kerr's papers is that he, he, he quotes from several of these palace letters in a journal that he keeps there he, he keeps extracts from some of the letters. There are several ways in which we've already been able to piece together the sorts of things the letters would tell us. The first point I would make um, is that from the point of view of what Kerr is writing to the palace, um, 
Kerr is behaving um, absolutely disgracefully for improperly for a Governor General. He is from the very first letter. He is undermining the government. It's a sustained undermining. He uh, disputes government decisions. He even in his very first letter to Sir Martin Charters in mid 1974, he questions the legality of the proclamation that he is to sign for the, 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 the joint sitting of the Houses of Parliament in August 1974, which followed the, the double dissolution of that year. It's an extraordinary comment scene. And, of course, it was untrue. The High Court was asked to rule on that and found in, Whitman's pay, in the government's favour. Nevertheless, Kerr is absolutely uh, disrespecting, uh, cavilling, and uh, on key points, uh, uh, quite literally undermining the government which he is meant to represent and whose advice he is meant to be passing on to the palace. That's the first thing that struck me. It's, a, it's quite a shocking exchange. Others have also written about this. Mango McCallum, the veteran journalist, described the fact that the palace engages with these conversations with Kerr as unconscionable. And I think that's pretty much the, the tone and the uh, interpretation that after the first few days of exploring a letter, most commentators had come to. The question is not, <clears throat> as, as was flying around fairly quickly, and I think <clears throat> in a very, um, you know, constructed red herring, I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> the question is not one of was the Queen told before, um, before uh, a curse could dismiss the government or... Uh, was it the Queen's decision to dismiss the government? I mean, we already know the answer to both those questions is, of course not. Kerr had already indicated that in his, in his memoirs. We all know that it was Kerr who signed the letter dismissing Whitlam, um, you know, and unless we seriously entertain the possibility the Queen was behind the curtain, this was Kerr making that, that final judgment. The question and the critical thing that is revealed in the letters is how did Kerr get to that point? How did he make that decision? And what role did the Queen have through her private secretary... In, in pointing Kerr in that direction. And there are several letters that are key to the argument that that is clearly what happened at this time, and they begin in um, October 1975 and, and very, very clearly, I've argued in a piece in The Guardian last week, uh, in two letters in particular from the 4th and the 5th of November 1975. Um, so it is a matter of going through the letters in great detail and seeing that Kerr's decision was very much influenced um, by the letters he was getting from Sir Martin Charters in reply. And indeed, that's, that's exactly what Kerr had said in his papers elsewhere. He'd already referred to Charters as advice to me on dismissal, is the wording he used, and he'd also indicated just how important Charters' illuminating observations, as Kerr described them, were to his final decision to dismiss the government. So I think that's been shown beyond any doubt by these letters, and it's, it's a shocking thing. Yeah, it is. It certainly is. And um, obviously the Queen's private secretary is an important figure and plays a very significant role for the Queen. Um, and you mentioned uh, Sir Martin Charteris and there were or there have been you know, various people writing uh, about these letters now looking at different quotes and um, what they've said. And it was interesting that um, on September the 24th, 1975, a letter from Charteris to Sir John Kerr uh, pointed out a Canadian constitutional law expert, Eugene Forsey's opinion that, quote, if supply is refused, this always makes it constitutionally proper to grant a dissolution, um, end quote, which of course means dissolution of parliament. Um, 
I'm interested in those uh, ad- points of advice or pointing, look over here, um, here's some legal information that's relevant to this situation. There were, it seems, multiple points in the in the letters that do kind of point to the reserve powers of the Governor-General um, and, of course, the, the types of powers that are available to the Governor-General uh, within the Constitution. In your mind, when you were reading through them, do you think there were some significant points or moments, as you say, in November, that did hint or show that the the palace kind of knew um, that they were providing some level of indicative advice or indicative information um, as to an option that Sir John Kerr could pursue? Oh, look, absolutely. And it is it does hinge on this pointing to Fawzi. You're absolutely right. There are three letters that refer Kerr to Fawzi, the one that you mentioned and the two that come just days before the dismissal, which is on the, 5th, the 4th and the 5th of November. Um, and in those ones, uh, uh, Charters is even more um, pointed in drawing Kerr's attention back to Fawzi. Now, the question of Fawzi as somebody who is being pointed to here is absolutely fascinating and, again, quite shocking. Fawzi put forward a very, very particular view of the use of the reserve powers. And more importantly than that, is, of course, Kerr would have been well aware of Fawzi's work. It's not as if Charters are saying, oh, here's someone you might not have heard of. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every Australian constitutional lawyer would have Mm -hmm. known of Eugene Fawzi, precisely because he took a very strong view supporting the use of reserve powers. Uh, the Australian expert in this area, Dr H.V. Everett, took a different view around key aspects of the use of the reserve powers, namely that there could be no use of them in particular instances where, for example, the government retained its majority in the House of Representatives, as the Whitman government always did. Mm. But more importantly than all of this, Amy, is a simple fact that Kerr did not at any point raise with Charles what was the advice of his Prime Minister what was the advice of the Australian law officers, that is, the Attorney-General and our um, and our Solicitor-General, and a Commonwealth, well, the Solicitor-General, as it's now called. And, and on both those fronts, the advice was that this was not a circumstance in which the reserve powers could be used. So Charters is pointing, Kerr, to advice that is against the advice he is getting from the Australian government. He is pointing him to a very particular conception of the use of the reserve powers. And in that way, he is making absolutely clear the road that can be theoretically validated for the use of the reserve powers in both dismissing a government and removing a government from office. And it it is a shocking, um, uh, as I've said many times now, uh, a fact that Kerr was engaging in a process of gaining advice from and being given advice from uh, from the Queen, effectively, through her public, uh, through her private secretary, whilst he was not taking the advice of the Australian elected government, the Prime Minister or the Australian law officers. Mm, It is astounding. And one of the quotes that I found really astounding, um, and it is from uh, the 4th of November 1975, which you do quote in the Guardian article, um, was from Charteris to Sir John Kerr, and the quote is, quote, if you do as you will what the Constitution dictates, you cannot possibly do the monarchy any avoidable harm. The chances are you will do it good, end quote, um, which seems to be pretty revealing of um, a level of sub- subjectivity 
on this on this issue of of using those reserve powers and the consequences of them. Oh, absolutely. And also, you have to recall <coughs> the Wind Charters is referring to. Uh, if you do as you must, what the Constitution requires. And he's already told him the Constitution requires, according to Forby, um, that you will always remove the government if it cannot gain supply. Um, absolutely critical. And, of course, um, uh, given that this is advice coming uh, uh, from the palace of all things, when, uh, when the Governor-General at all times ought to be acting on, or at the very least speaking to and discussing with, um, these matters with the elected government, and that is precisely what Kerr had determined that he would not do. Mm-hmm. So it's important to put those two things together, that Kerr himself has acknowledged in various writings. He appeared to be proud of the fact that he was refusing to speak to the government about these things. Now, he says uh, in his memoirs that as early as September, he had decided on what he called the policy of silence towards the Prime Minister. Now, uh, I've described that as just constitutionally preposterous. It's, it's mm. inconceivable that a Governor-General who in the Constitution acts on the advice of, um, of elected uh, government through his chief ministerial advisers um, uh, uh, has chosen not to speak to the Prime Minister. In my view, at that moment, Kerr was unable to operate as Governor-General. He ought to have resigned. He ought to have said to Whitlam, I cannot uh, do the very fundamental um, a role of a Governor-General in speaking and discussing matters with you and, you know, hand in his commission. It's, it's a simply intolerable position that the government then effectively um, was in a position of deception from the Governor-General because he was speaking to others about the very matters that led to the dismissal of the government while he was remaining silent on them to the government. And I know a lot of uh, there's been a lot of speculation around Kerr, the the man, and his character and his potential motivations, um, and and a lot of people not really understanding why someone would go to such effort to um, not just you know do something that is literally unprecedented, has never happened in Australian history before, but also to um, so closely relate back and forth, as you've said, um, back and forth to the palace on this issue and not actually, uh, you know, just represent the Queen and actually be embedded within the country and the legal system he's actually situated in. Um, But I wonder from your perspective now, given that you've read these letters and you have read Kerr's other letters, what can we assess or um, understand, gain an understanding about this man who was our Governor-General and and why he did this? Look, it's one of the... Um, it, it's, it, it's an imponderable on one level, but in another, on, another, on another level, it's very clear in a very disheartening way just what a deeply damaged person Kerr was. He was um, insecure... He was vain. He was given to flattery. You can see throughout these letters, um, he's being played by the palace, you know, the wily old uh, monarchical retainer of um, Sir Martin Charters has his measure, of course, and the persuasiveness with which he, you know, cajoles Kerr about his his great uh, constitutional capacity, his great legal knowledge, um, and so on. And Kerr is clearly in their thrall. Um, but I think we shouldn't take away from the fact that there was enormous pressure on Kerr. And I'm speaking now of the man that's barely been mentioned uh, since the release of the letters, and that is the leader of the opposition, Malcolm Fraser. Mm-hmm. Fraser himself describes uh, his discussions with Kerr as threatening. 
um, that he threatened to denounce him if he did not move against the government. These are shocking. I use that word a lot, I know. But these are really appalling uh, discussions for a leader of the opposition whose party had lost the previous two elections, I should remind everyone, um, to be having with the Governor-General. He had no... There's no constitutional relationship whatsoever between the leader of the opposition and the Governor-General. He ought to only have been speaking to Whitlam and he ought to have been taking the advice of the government. It was, it was that simple. Had he done so, he would have called the half-Senate election and we would not be having this conversation today. So Kerr was under enormous pressure from Fraser. Fraser later said that, you know, oh, I, I understood Kerr better. I understood his temperament. I, I, could, I could play him better than Whitlam. Well, you know, the Prime Minister should not have to play the Governor-General. No. They each, they each have a clear role and they ought to have been fulfilling their role. So the whole notion that, um, you know, somehow Whitlam was in error for not recognising the frailties of the Governor-General, I've always found rather bizarre. They had their own roles, they ought to have played the roles, and we would not, as I said, we would not now be still discussing the dismissal 45 years <laughs> later if that had happened. Absolutely. Um, just finally, Jenny, in terms of history, of course, history is very much important for the present and the future in terms of what it can tell us and what we should be learning from it. And I wonder, from these letters and from the process that you've undertaken and um, and the greater understanding you now have of the dismissal and the situation circumstances around it, what do you think um, are some of the lessons in your mind from this period and and from this um, these letters, I guess, potentially around the constitutional monarchy um, as one clear example? Yes, look, um, I'm a member of the uh, National Committee of the Australian Republic Movement, let me get that out there, and I feel very strongly that, um, that we ought to be able to stand on our own two feet and not have to be asking the Queen, firstly, whether we can look at, you know, archival material in our own <laughs> national archives, but more, I suppose, more structurally, of course, whether there ought to be any of these, uh, what Whitlam called colonial relics floating around in the most unexpected places, even in our own archives, um, that still tie up in these sort of unexpected ways um, to notions of royal secrecy, to connections, to, to Buckingham Palace, to connections between government house and um, and Buckingham Palace, and so on. Um, and I think I think uh, one of the shocking things about about 1975 is just how much impact that sort of lingering relationship, that that, that incomplete severance of our post-colonial sort of um, uh, existence, uh, how much damage that done, how significant it was. Um, and and we ought to move past that and make that severance final. Um, so it operates really on two levels. Um, the fact that uh, Kerr, uh, uh, Kerr acted on what were called um, the reserve powers of the Crown, the residual reserve powers of the Crown, um, was only possible because of that um, connection on a, on a constitutional level, still back to, to, the, to the way in which those powers had originally emanated. They're not powers that are available to the Queen any longer or the monarch, and yet they remain in a sort of residual form in our Governor-General, although that's contested. But secondly, you see real and more current power through the lasting embargo over these letters that the Queen had. They were, they were closed by the Queen's embargo in our own national archives. So we, are, um, we do need to move forward to a republic that will sever those bounds once and for all. It doesn't sever our historical connection. It doesn't change the fact that we have a clear history 
with the United Kingdom that we can't ever ever walk away from, but it does mean that we uh, control our own um, political structures and our, our own matters of governance far more clearly. Um, and that's what I would like us to, us to move to. I think we've got a lot of work to do to put forward a model that bridges the two very different views of how that republic might look. But I think it's possible um, with goodwill to get there. Mm. Thank you so much, Jenny, and they're excellent points. And uh, I do wish you all the best with the book that is coming out uh, very soon through Scribe Publications, and it's called The Palace Letters. And also thank you just so much today for sharing your great insights with us. Oh, it's been a great pleasure, Amy. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.